0: Okay. Good evening, everybody, and welcome. Um, I'm Pernasen. I'll be chairing tonight. Thank you all for coming. Um, I'd like just to say a couple of words by way of introduction, and then we have a fantastic panel of speakers tonight, so I won't take up their time. Um, John spoke, John Crudus spoke uh, on the 10th of June about the values of responsibility, reciprocity, and relationships. I'm guessing that we might get a little bit more on what that means in terms of citizenship and moral values. I don't know what John or David or Alan will talk about tonight, but I do know that Francesca will be giving a response and make some of her own points. Mm-hmm. I'd like to start by noting that in time of economic hardship, we had reports today of uh, wage freezes, we have cuts going on here <coughs> and elsewhere in Europe, and we have efforts in many countries to define the nat- nature of the relationship between citizen and state, not least of all in Turkey, as we sit here and discuss things tonight. And questions about the direction and meaning of citizenship and values are certainly pertinent. This is a, an event uh, under the auspices of the in- Institute of Public Affairs. Are you getting feedback? Institute of Public Affairs, is that better? <laughs> At the LSC. Um, where we 're looking at the connections between the academic world and policymakers and politics and the public, our One Nation Britain program starts now it started a few weeks ago, and it will run for the best part of next, of a year. This series of public events, which started with a debate between Lord Glassman and Michael Gove in May, is one element, and there will be more in the autumn term. There will be some smaller groups and conversations that continue after the public events and we hope that what comes from these series of of debates will be reflected in smaller, more uh, intimate conversations, and perhaps some of you will return to join us for those. I'd like to flag the next event, which is on the 9th of July, where we're looking at One Nation, Many Roots, and hope to see some of you there as well. You'll find information on the LSE website. I'll quickly introduce all the speakers um, and then let them... Speak to you. Can I ask you to turn off or to put silent your mobile phones? Um, we'll start from uh, John Craddis. Uh, I'll introduce you all first, though. who um, is the Labour MP for Dagenham and Raynham and has been a Member of Parliament since uh, 2001. I'm going to be very brief, if I may, John. Um, he has been really prominent in campaigns for free and fair election, uh, education, and he leads the Labour Party's uh, policy review around the theme of one nation. So he'll be leading our conversation tonight. He'll <coughs> be followed by David Davis, MP, who is a Conservative Party MP for Holton, Price and Howden since 1997 and was previously MP for the Booth Ferry constituency. He's very well known for being a strong defender of civil liberties having famously resigned as an MP in protest of what he saw as excessive government interference in people's lives. Um, We'll then hear from Professor Alan Sked, who teaches international history here at the LSE and has written many books outside of academia. He was a founding member of the Bruges Group, but is perhaps best known for founding the anti-European UK Independence Party in 1993, from which he has since resigned. And lastly, but absolutely not least... We will hear... We'll always th- leave
1: a floating ship. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was a sinking ship, actually. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then we'll hear from Professor Francesca Klug, who's a research, professorial research fellow here at the LSE and director of the Human Rights Futures Project. Francesca is chair of the independent charity the British Institute of Human Rights and an academic expert at Doughty Street Chambers. And it doesn't say on here, but she's also sometimes referred to as the mother of our Human Rights Act, um, a very illustrious position that we respect very much. We will hear from the speakers and open up for a discussion, and then at the end, uh, Professor Craig Calhoun, who I can't see up here, the new director of the school, uh, will join us for a few words uh, to reflect on the the discussion so far. So, John, would you like to start with 15 minutes? I'll give you a two-minute notice.
2: Right, I've got 15 minutes. Okay, thank you very much indeed, Dan Um And thank you very much indeed to uh, inviting me to speak here on this question of virtuous citizenship um, in this One Nation series. Um, this series focuses on what does it mean to be of the left, and actually what does it mean to be of the right? What does it mean to be radical? What does it mean to be conservative? And I want to come to those things in a minute, but first I want to talk about this question of One Nation Labour by way of introduction. I want to start with a series of basic propositions. The first proposition is this: um, we in Labour have recently had a not an insignificant collision with the electorate, arguably our worst ever result since 1918. It was probably worse in terms of the proportion of vote than 1931, and it was even though it was slightly higher as a proportion than 1983. It was worse because there was no mitigating factor of the SDP as it was then. So, um, the second proposition follows out of it that there is a lot of historical evidence to suggest that we are not very good at being in opposition. For example, on losing power in 31, on losing <coughs> power in 1951, and in losing power in 1979, it took us 13 years, 14 years, and 18 years, respectively, to get back into power. We tend to go off-piste, get preoccupied with internal battles amongst ourselves, ignore the electorate, and uh, allow David's lot to dominate proceedings. So that's the basic riff that comes out of Labour losing Power. Um, So the task is basically to regain power after only one term in opposition against the backdrop of our worst results since 1918. So it's not an insignificant task that we have. Actually, it's worse than that, because the third proposition I would suggest is that Labour are not very good at moments of capitalist rupture or crisis. 1931, 1983, 2010 are our three worst electoral defeats. They follow two years after 1929 two years after 1980, one two years after 2008. The question, therefore, is Labour just for the good times? Does its revisionism, be it from Brown or Crossland, need growth to politically prosper? Is it just about spending the money? Um, Now, these basic three propositions suggest we possibly... (laughs) (laughs) We we possibly (laughs) face the worst (laughs) challenge in our history, (laughs) so what might we do to get out of it? And here's the fourth proposition. Again, any cursory reading of history suggests that Labour only wins when it successfully contests the national story. Think back 1945, where we successfully thought about a new Jerusalem, compare and contrast that with the 30s being the period of... Mass unemployment and appeasement. Think about 1964 where Alec Douglas, who's roaming around the grouse moor, versus uh, Harold Wilson's conception of modernity think. and the technological challenges facing the country. Think about 1997 when you have Blair promising economic and social modernization of the country, compare and contrast with the drift, sleaze, decline, major, etc., etc. So, three times, three periods of majoritarian Labour government, we successfully contested the national story. Put simply, Labour must own its own patriotic story of hope and the future. But Labour and patriotism have an uncomfortable relationship. Patriotism, seen as pathology, is something that goes back over 100 years across the centre-left in this country, going back to the Second World War, really. And, indeed, fears of patriotism as being racially absolute, quite rightly, remain central to concerns in the party about issues of patriotism. Compare and contrast that, however, with Clement Attlee when he entered the wartime coalition in 1940 to support Churchill against Halifax and Chamberlain, and the Tory search for peace with Hitler is arguably Labour's greatest patriotic gift to the country. So, a one-nation framework is an attempt to contest the very notion of nationhood, what it is to be patriotic, actually what it is to offer hope. Raymond Williams once said to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing and that's what this is about, to try and make hope possible rather than despair convincing. Now the second area I just want to briefly touch on is the question of modern conservatism. Identifying tensions across the republican right, the revered US commentator David Brooks recently wrote that, quote, economic conservatives have taken control, traditional conservatism has gone into eclipse. Here it is a similar battle. In the UK, a rapacious economic liberalism threatens the Conservative Party. It now dominates the texture of the party. A once great political party is being deracinated in the sense of one that values and desires to conserve the essential institutions and traditions of the country. Margaret Thatcher quite brilliantly held together these liberal and conservative traditions in her party. Under Cameron, they're in hand-to-hand combat. Don't take my word for this. Jesse Norman, MP, has written a new book on Burke, which is quite brilliant. It builds, and I quote, a deep philosophical critique of political rationalism and revolutionary ideology. He hides behind history, but it is a contemporary political intervention. Norman's lessons from Burke are, to, are the building blocks for a different type of Conservative Party the rebuilding of trust and social capital, the renewal of our national and institutional character the preservation of social order and representative government in the national interest, a critique of cronyism and excessive power, a return to issues of duty and obligation to each other, above all, a critique of market fundamentalism. History and memory are not economics, and not economic science is the key currency in that politics. Politics is about nurturing of virtue, honour, loyalty, duty, wisdom. It is not about atomized economic exchange. Now, I agree with this type of politics deeply out of fashion in the modern Conservative Party. Jesse Norman, Burke, he offers a truly devastating critique of liberal individualism in the modern era and within his own party. Unfortunately, he's lost that battle before he started. A stronger leader, like I would suggest David Davis, um, would have, like Thatcher, held together more robustly (laughs) these liberal and conservative traditions. David Cameron does not have the strength or the character to lead his party through that reconciliation so the third area therefore I want to touch on is this can labour become more conservative as the Tories become more liberal that is, seems to me a very interesting political question this has always been a concern there has always been conservative traditions within labour defending us against relentless commodification defenders of home place tradition nation labor is not just a domain of liberal progressives. The danger for Labour is recoiling into this type of progressive politics automatically cast its opponents, and this can include an awful lot of the electorate as reactionary, nostalgic and ignorant. One Nation gives us some distance from this exclusively liberal and progressive conception of politics that by its nature is (coughs) destructive of tradition and of institutions. Here is where the rubber hits the road in terms of the categories for tonight's conversation, the notion of virtuous citizenship. I would suggest that the future centre ground could well lie as a contest between what we might call neoliberal conceptions of the human condition and politics and a neo-Aristotelian one of politics and the human condition. Let's briefly talk Foodism about some the categories. The field of virtue mm. ethics concentrates on the classical mm. ideas such as honour, duty, justice, not wisdom, not fortitude not to worship. evaluate the reasoning behind moral decision-making as opposed to a mere adherence to rules for rules' sake or the outcome of the action. The aim of Aristotle's virtue ethics was human flourishing, the state of human life that could only be properly achieved by the city-state community, not the world of individual patronised exchange, favoured by variants of liberalism. This takes us right back to Burke's rejection of the cult of individualism. It also allows for criticism of those transactional and managerial elements of what became of the last Labour government. We can take this fault line further. Let's look at this another way. Liberal citizenship, and I can hear Francesca uh,
1: preparing for combat, and if
2: Liberal consi- cons- citizenship is dominant in our political culture and certainly within academic politics and philosophy departments for the past 30 years, and identified primarily with John Rawls. Is there an alternative, what we might call virtuous citizenship, that draws precisely on the Aristotelian thinking that I mapped out earlier? Try this out. Liberal citizenship gives priority to individual rights. Its working concepts are fairness, liberty and equality. It is assumed that there is an incommensurability of conceptions of the good in modern pluralist societies and it would be authoritarian and against justice to impose one particular conception on others, non-judgmental, in danger of relativism. There is a great deal to be admired in this tradition. Rawls was, through the difference principle, gave a status to the poorest that other variants of liberal theory had denied. It gives an appropriate recognition of the importance of toleration and liberty that must be part of a just society. But is it enough to renew our democracy, civic, economic, as well as parliamentary, We need to find the notion of a common good that has been neglected by an exclusively legalistic, managerial and technocratic conception of justice and politics. To do this, it it would help if we, in Labour, would claim the exiled notion of virtue compared to a reliance on liberal individualism. (coughs) Think of these words. Power, organisation, organising, leadership, conflict. Liberal citizenship is not good with these words and this terrain. So can a notion of virtuous citizenship address these things directly by having a role for institutions, relationships, good practice, skill, leadership and action in its political locker? Such an idea of citizenship would seek to pluralise both market and state. Moreover, would not the notion of virtuous citizenship open up a political vocabulary that has almost ossified for lack of use around labour? And that involves the notion of duty and obligation, compassion, vocation and service distilled into a story of national renewal. Fidelity, relationships and courage. This helps us engage with the direct problems that we confront in our politics. The sense of powerlessness that people feel, of exclusion and estrangement. A lack of participation. A lack of virtue in our institutions and our politics. And here, nobody is innocent. The City of London, as well as Parliament, the police, the church, the BDC. There is an unchecked elitism that requires democratic organisation to keep it straight. So, for a policy (coughs) review of the opposition Labour Party... What virtues do we want to nurture? What is the role of public policy and institutions in developing these virtues? For example, compassion in the health service amongst public service workers, wisdom in the education system, civility across our public services. It implies a new covenant between state and citizen, rights and responsibility. The word covenant is appropriate because it is beyond transactional and beyond utility maximisation between individuals. What are the rewards for virtuous behaviour through citizenship? a national loyalty card, if you wish. How do we codify these expectations of our citizens, their duties and obligations to each other? It also relates to the formation of character, mental well-being and the development of individual resilience through a relationship between the institutions and with others to promote virtue. I would argue the least noticed element of Ed Miliband's modernisation of the Labour Party to date has been the change that's occurring on the ground. New forms of political culture in the party around local organisation, leadership development and campaigning. The party is less authoritarian, less top-down, and here, for me, is the gig. By listening to what people say, we are rediscovering our own lost and exiled traditions. A liberal conception of citizenship might be surprised that there's a great deal of concern for family life, for how we honour our obligations to those we love, our parents, our children. There is a concern with the places that people live and how to arrest their decline and their, indeed, homogenisation. Our rediscovery of family and place, of work and wages, is organising the policy positions we're developing. Regional banking, housing policy, vocational colleges, worker representation, a much more radical series of labour market interventions, the control of modern day usury and many more ideas. In short, one nation labour could be defined by its reappropriation of virtue as the Tories vacate these spaces and this language. To me, what is being played out in the modern Tory party is a national tragedy, actually. Um, But self-interest dictates that I don't dwell on that for too long. We have a lot further to go, and I wanted to share with you tonight the importance of virtue in our thinking as a means of renewing citizenship, understood as the participation of citizens in self-government, literally to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. Thank you very much indeed. (laughs) Thank (laughs) you.
3: Yeah, it's, back. It tinker, so it's,
1: uh, back. Sorry,
3: we're I can still hear it. But never mind. Mm-hmm. If,
1: uh, we'll, uh, if that's no good, then will well, put up. Don't speak it. too close to
3: Not to do that, Mike, something else. Anyway, I'm glad to hear, uh, John, that uh, uh, new Labour, new, new, new Labour is going to be less authoritarian and not more. It's hard to see how it could have been more than the one we had before. Um, I'm going to start with, uh, in, in honour of uh, uh, Conor McGeary, with a moment of Marxism. Um, um, uh, the reason we are talking about uh, one-nation Labour, one-nation service, and the reason it's become, come back into fashion, is because, of course, uh, capitalism is having one of its crises at the moment. Not the first by any means, but of course capitalism does specialise in surviving crises. But if you look back over history for a little while uh, and look at the the three biggest crises, at least in my memory, in my knowledge of uh, of, uh, the history of capitalism, uh, all three had something in common. They all started with a gilded age in which we had huge growth in the economy of uh, our nation, America uh, and other Western nations, including America. Followed by a crash, followed by uh, a period of misery thereafter. And it's one of the uh, abiding parts of uh, human nature—conservative, Labour, doesn't matter what it is. Uh, One of the abiding parts: we all have a tension within us between individualism and collectivism, between liberty and security, and between ambition and altruism. That's programmed into us over a million years of evolution. And the balance between the Maltas, from time to time, you see in the last few weeks when we come under threat, there's a sudden swing towards being authoritarian. The death, the tragic death in Woolwich uh, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, monstrous crime, led to the House of Commons behaving like a bunch of puppets yesterday when we talked about uh, the prison intervention mm. in people's affairs. Uh, that reflex is built into all of us. We move backwards and forwards between the extremes, not just uh, depending on what party we're in. Now, the same thing is true with economics. Look at those big three uh, capitalist crises I talked about. Uh, The long depression, so-called, of the late 19th century, um, the 1929 crash that John referred to, and, of course, 2008. Uh, The... Before them you had huge burgeoning growth rates in the uh, relevant economies. Uh, all sorts of things going on which were tolerated because everybody was doing quite well. Everybody was, their earnings were going up so they put up with the sort of... Actually the anthropologists have, uh, have a name for it, tolerated theft. They put up with the fact that people were walking away with vast numbers of millions of pounds in the city of London, uh, or in Wall Street, and uh, your previous Prime Minister, John, seemed to approve of it enormously. In fact, some of them were funders of your party. So uh, uh, it was tolerated then, uh, just as uh, Vanderbilt, uh, Carnegie, uh, Rockefeller, uh, J.P. Morgan, in their relevant days, were tolerated, indeed all fated, uh, as uh, great creators of the new economies, And then it all went wrong, and the tolerance disappeared. And that tolerance went from not approving of tax evasion, uh, I'm using the right word, not tax avoidance, tax evasion at one end to benefit cheats at the other. And it's true of the entire electorate, and, of course, the, the, it's also true of the, uh, the politicians that reflect on uh, Now, this is an important thing to understand when we're talking about One Nation, because One Nation is designed to deal with a fear, with a, an anxiety that goes throughout all society. In my party, One Nation has been most important after the Depression, uh, uh, the various depressions that, uh, that have been dealt with, and it's an important uh, political reaction, but it's also an important uh, policy reaction. I distinguish between the two. Now... How bad is this change? How important does it make one nation politics? Well, this change that we've gone through is truly terrible for a number of reasons. and the first of which, uh, the liberal economics that John doesn't like, is rather important to. The Western world is probably now living in an era of one percent growth. We've lived in an era of about three percent growth for about 50 years. And that's given us, broadly speaking, full employment. Broadly speaking, every year, everybody gets a bit better off. Broadly speaking, everybody establishes some wealth. 1% is dramatically different. 1% is a lost generation of unemployed. 1% is people not getting better off every year, just the reverse. We don't have the numbers for Britain. But a man called Emmanuel Sayes, uh, an economist, did a study of the American economy. And in 2010, the uh, American economy grew by 2%. That 2% wasn't for everybody. The top 1% of the, the top 100th of society in America had a 12% increase in income. The rest of society, 99%, had basically nothing. It was a small fraction of 1%. Now, that tells you the sort of society we might be looking at in the future. The willingness of the uh, country at large to forgive political errors, to to forgive the political class at all for what it's doing, will be very small if that's the area we live in, we continue to live in. Uh, In fact, that's why the argument in my party about tax rates, regulation, Europe, all of these relate to whether or not we can get out of that 1% trap. Because if we can't get out of that 1% trap, politics for the next 50 years is going to be incredibly difficult. And remember, the Great Depression of the late 19th century, the effects of it were only wiped out by the First World War. 1929, only wiped out by the Second World War. I don't really want to theorise on what would end this particular era, which is why the debate on liberal economics, lower taxes, lower regulation, basically all about getting the growth rate up, is fundamental to this debate too. It underpins it. And this debate becomes incredibly important if we fail. Less important if we succeed, because everybody would be happy if we've got money to go around, but not if we fail. Now, where are we today? And I'm now not speaking on behalf of the coalition, because I'm going to be as critical of them uh, as I am of their predecessors. The backdrop is a country which has not apparently reformed itself. We have uh, a, a banking sector in particular which is uh, uh, still in much the same state it was before 2008, except it's got a lot more taxpayers' money in it. Uh, the distinction that Ed Miliband, I think, made between producer and predator capitalism, really between wealth creators and wealth extractors, a better way to think of it, it's less emotive, those who actually create wealth, those who simply uh, uh, get it by economic rent, get it, uh, get yeah. it out of the system for themselves, nothing's been done about that at all. How many people went to prison after the crash? And yet there's no doubt there are enormous frauds in it. Uh, last week or the week before, Jeffrey Sachs, one of the leading American economists, talked about Wall Street being full of crooks. Now, I wouldn't use his words, but the sentiment is easily understandable and very, very much sympathised with Uh, by many people. And this week, this morning, we hear about the PPI fraud. So from one extreme to another, we see uh, a banking sector which is not reformed, and governments of all sorts, too close to finance, all of them, too close to big business, all of them, who have not reformed it either. And unless both our parties, not just mine, both our parties get that sorted out, then I'm afraid it won't be a choice between Labour and Conservatives in a couple of elections' time, it'll be some other party that will have come up. And I don't think it'll be UKIP, but it could be some other party, because what will happen is the, uh, the, uh, the electorate will abandon us, not the other way around. Or well, they'll think we've abandoned them, but they will abandon us. So what do we need to do about it? Well, firstly, obviously, we want to try and get the growth rate up. And We're not into that debate today. We'll come back and talk about economics another day. Um, but what we're about, therefore, is one nation... Economics. Now, uh, One Nation politics. Now, what's that about? One Nation politics is actually, uh, as it's a Tory invention, I can claim the definition, it's actually about protecting the least well-off. It is really as simple as that. It's not about being a woolly liberal of any sort, <laughs> my sort or his sort. Uh, it's, it's about protecting the least well-off. And that is the only test. It and it's the only test will actually work in the next election and the one thereafter. And who are the least well-off? Well, you've got a number of them. You've got the precariat, as now defined by the BBC's new definition of class, those who are uh, either uh, supported by the state or near to, and the least well-paid. And they're hurt by all sorts of things, which you wouldn't think a one-nation policy would deal with, like immigration, for example, where uh, the people who suffered from the ridiculous relaxation of immigration during the labour years were the least well-off. Competition over jobs, housing, public service and kept kept their wages down. John's right. Education, the single biggest issue, actually, in modern politics. And Diane Abbott, was it yesterday or today, uh, actually admitted that she sent her children to private school because the state school system was so poor. What a tragedy. What a disaster. And I have to say, John, uh, your party has a lot to answer for on that front. Uh, Housing. We haven't got enough social housing, and we've got people stuck in social housing. One of the great reforms of the Thatcher era was to allow people to buy their houses. I'd do the same. For all social housing and spend the money on more social housing. Do the job Mm -hmm. properly. There are a whole series of things I could uh, could talk to you about. It won't be a big society. That's important, but it won't fix tomorrow's problem. That'll make a difference in 30 years' time, not today. The key point in all this is that one-nation politics cannot be a soundbite because if it is a soundbite, the whole nation will abandon the whole political class and we'll all be worse off for it. Thank you.
1: Ah, ladies and gentlemen, um, it's a great pleasure to be here tonight and take part in this uh, debate. Uh, thank you all very much uh, for coming to hear us. Uh, you've now heard the politicians. Uh, according to both previous speakers, we have a crisis of capitalism. Uh, the intellectuals don't have any CA to solve it. Um, uh, they don't seem to have any solution to solve it either. Um, But I've been impressed by the high quality of the mea culpa and the demonstration of their sort of incompetence and uh, impotence in face of the the crisis. We've heard quotes from Aristotle, Burke, Rawls, and uh, we've been given historical dates, economic statistics, and it's all highly impressive. It would be even more impressive if you were actually doing something about what (laughs) you've actually created over the last 15 or 20 years. But anyway, let's get away from the uh, politicians and see what... This slogan, uh, One Nation Britain, actually means. Does it mean anything? Well, uh, the Tories, of course, invented the slogan. Uh, It's now being claimed by Labour. If there's any proof that it's absolutely meaningless, that's about it. Uh, In origin, it goes back to Disraeli, a Conservative leader, uh, who discovered that there were two nations in Britain, a rich one and a poor one, That, you might see, is quite a discovery for a Conservative uh, Prime Minister, but still, in any case, uh, he came and went, but the rich and poor remained. Uh, And, of course, they still do. Inequality is a growing fact of life uh, in contemporary Britain. Uh, the top, 1% of the population now take out 15% of national income, and that's compared to 6% in 1979, Uh, and the share of national income of that top 1% is growing. Even the share of the other 9% that come after that is relatively diminishing. Uh, Presumably, uh, the slogan, One Britain, should mean uh, that we should all do something about this. At least we should show some moral solidarity or social concern, which, of course, has been amply uh, demonstrated by my uh, colleagues here tonight. But it should be a consensus. But the consensus that we now have uh, in Britain between the uh, coalition government and the opposition, and remember, Labour is now promised to freeze welfare after 215 and cannot even say whether it would reverse the bedroom tax, this consensus, uh, or presumably the one nation Britain that these two have been talking about, it, is actually based uh, on an austerity problem which targets the poor more than the rich and which seeks, as far as I can see, to encourage a class war between those on declining average wages and those even poorer, those dependent on welfare or legal aid. Nothing, meanwhile, has been done to end the scandal of bankers' bonuses and indeed the bonuses of those at the top of the civil service, the BBC, the National Health Service and local government. The highest paid in the land have been given a 5% tax cut while billions are paid to an even more overpaid and undertaxed elite in Brussels uh, whose failed policies cost us billions every year 10% of GDP according to some think -think tanks uh, and and whose instructions take up 40% of government time to implement that comes from Steve Hilton Steve Hilton, the man who was the blue sky thinker, thinker of the Tory party Prime Minister David Cameron, who went, left number 10, went to America took sabbatical at Stanford University and at a seminar at Stanford University, said that 40% of all David Cameron's government's time was taken up thinking how to implement <coughs> regulations from Brussels. Uh, I must say that the, the German government said that 80% of all legislation comes from Brussels, so perhaps he underestimated it. Uh, but never mind, all these uh, elites are the ones who are doing best and nothing's been done about them. Uh, and yet disabled people are penalised if they're not obviously using every inch of space in their bedrooms. I must say, I don't know what other people think of what David Davis and the Tories think of the Lib Dems, but I find a bedroom tax probably the, mo- the, the most iniquitous and appalling device ever thought up by government in recent times And for the Labour Party, not to know how to handle it seems to me an absolute indictment of it. So, One Nation then seems to me a consensus between uh, the major parties at the cost of the poorest. Uh, Sorry, I'm not impressed. At a time when I think we need a new Lloyd George and a new People's Budget, we get instead a new Stanley Baldwin and a new Ramsay (laughs) (laughs) MacDonald. The Lib Dems, meanwhile, are in a state of utter confusion, uh, both among themselves and with their coalition partners. They remind me of Carl Schmitt's line about German liberals. He said, if they were asked to choose between Christ and Barabbas, they would set up a commission of inquiry. <laughs> Not that the mad conservative Christians would get all excited about gay marriage or really any better, Uh, The only part of the Bible these days that they seem to know about is the one that says, to those who have shall be given, from those who have not shall be taken away. Well, the term one nation is also suspect on account, of course, there are four nations in Britain. And as a Scot, I would remind people that my Scottish brother are actually having a referendum next year and were to stay in Britain, but so far, uh, two English MPs haven't mentioned that. Uh, Finally, one nation, I think, should imply a democratic, self-governing Britain outside the EU. The latter is now anti-democratic, a bureaucratic monstrosity that undermines both our democratic processes of government and our economic prosperity. It doesn't even follow its own laws. Its economic influence in the world is declining. Its diplomatic influence is almost non-existent, when Baroness Ashton speaks, people merely ask, who is she? <laughs> Hence, I think we should withdraw and democratically solve, solve our own problems. We existed for centuries before the EU. We should exist for centuries once the EU has disappeared. But as Nigel Farage, the president leader of a party I once formed... Uh, and once I tried to expel from that party, uh, <laughs> <laughs> told the BNP whom he was photographed having lunch with, uh, Nigel said he would stay in and turn out to the radical right. So, uh, if I can just find this, um, if you forgive me for a moment. Uh, sorry. Oh, yeah, sorry. I just, just, I'm not the world's IT expert, as you can see. Anyway, so I'm trying to form a democratic center left party that's Eurosceptic. And if you get in touch with this, democratic self government at gmail, democratic self government at gmail.com. If any of you are interested in helping this enterprise, then please just email me uh, and we'll be in touch with you. I founded UKIP at LSE. I don't see why I shouldn't find another party a better one at LSE. Anyway, this is to put pressure on the Labour and the (laughs) DEM parties and anybody else, else who wants a proper, independent, democratic Britain with liberal values, human rights, and social values and social solidarity, and is not oppressed by the right-wing radicalism of uh, fascists like Mr Farage. So, anyways, um, that's all I have to say. One nation, Britain, should mean a, a consensus which looks to help the poor and not the elite. It should be aware that there are more nations in Britain apart from England, and it should be aware that the best way to get a one nation is to rule ourselves Democratically outside the EU. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So I'm you. of you expelling Nick Clegg from that one. <laughs> <laughs> we would like him in the first place. You'll be a commissioner, by the way. Very good. Yeah, could you take that down, please? <laughs> 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 You invited me. What did you expect?
4: <laughs> can you hear me? I don't think you can see me, but you, can you hear me? Yeah, good. Uh, now, what was it we're meant to be talking about tonight? Virtuous citizenship and the moral values of one nation? What a title. I believe it was your title, John. It brings to mind, to my mind at any rate, the famed fictitional psychiatrist, Dr Abbott. Anyone remember him? It's from my favourite sitcom, Forty Towers. Dr. Abbott, on discovering John Cleese, or rather Basil Forty, in the wardrobe of his bedroom, comments there's enough material here for an entire conference. <laughs> In case anyone hasn't noticed, I'm the odd one out of this quartet of speakers in more ways than one.
3: It's a quartet of odd ones out.
4: <laughs> Besides the obvious one, which is that I'm barely able to see, in fact I'm not able to see, of the lectern, um, I'm neither an MP nor have I ever even considered founding, founding one political party, let alone two.
1: It's the third, actually.
4: <laughs> I'm known for my understatement.
1: Third, third time lucky.
4: (laughs) So my role tonight, I guess, is therefore more of a gentle interlocutor to question, in particular, what on earth is going on when Labour takes up the formerly Tory mantle of One Nation, and to consider how we to judge whether One Nation politics lives up to the moral values it proclaims. But I want to begin by taking us back to tonight's title. As will become obvious, I am not a moral philosopher. But I do recognize a broadly Aristotelian worldview when it hits me in the face. I got it right, John. I'm so thrilled. Aristotle, the godfather of virtue ethics, held that ethics and politics are inextricably intertwined. A good life requires a good society, and a good society is one that enables human beings to realize their highest nature and, hence, to live the good life. This good life is achieved not just by citizens pursuing their own goals, but by contributing to the common good, being virtuous in other words, so that a state's purpose, according to Aristotle, is not merely to provide a living, but to make a life that is good. Sounds just like John. Don't you think I can just see him now? Can't you picture him in his Togo? (laughs)
1: But don't don't forget the (laughs) slaves.
4: Don't picture that. That's you, Alan.
1: Now, as John
4: John left us in no doubt, this broad Aristotelian approach is generally conceived as contrasting with a liberal or Rawlsian view that he defamed me by associating (laughs) me with, which very crudely put sees the state's overarching purpose as to create the political conditions in which all individuals can exercise free will or choice as long as they don't harm others. The only non-negotiables from this perspective are liberal values like free speech, freedom of religion and other fundamental rights. Now, in adopting a one-nation mantle, Labour appears to be distancing itself from this Rawlsian view of the state, I think we've worked that out, <laughs> and substituting it with a new hybrid vision that lies somewhere between Disraeli and Aristotle. totalism, I suppose <laughs> it could be called. Politically, Labour appears to be gunning for two targets at once, a double whammy, if you like, First, the obvious one, the Conservative Party. By stealing the clothes of one-nation Toryism, Labour is clearly seeking to persuade us that, tinged with blue, they are the rightful inheritors of this unifying tradition of British politics, whilst the policies of the current government foster dwellers in different zones or inhabitants of different planets to draw from Disraeli's famous quote in his novel Sybil. The second target of Labour's redefined one-nation politics is, less obviously perhaps, new Labour. By adopting the one-nation mantle, Ed Miliband's Labour Party appears to be seeking to distinguish itself in our eyes from that aspect of new Labour which seemed (coughs) dazzled by the wealth-creating potentials of a globalised economy and careless about its impact on local networks and relationships that nurture human virtues like caring, mutuality, and even love, as we just heard from John Cruddus. Not so much love to me personally, but you get my point. As I understand it, the moral values Labour is seeking to promote through its version of one-nation politics are not just aimed at reducing divisions, therefore. One-nation is not simply a more pious way of saying we're all in this together. It's about cherishing collaborative means of working and living that foster a sense of connectedness and reciprocal duties. All moral frameworks lay claim to some foundational premise from which they say that ethics derive, whether it is the god of faith, the rationality of liberalism, or the human dignity of international human rights. For one-nation adherents, the founding principles seem to be not liberty or even equality as much as community. ...on the basis that it is strong communities or collaborative ventures... ...which nurture the cooperative virtues of mutual responsibility and mutual care. Now, as a worldview which reflects the spirit of our age... ...one nation is in many ways compelling, in my view. How tired we are being told the price of everything and the value of nothing. How weary we are of the trivializing of the local, the ordinary, the everyday connections we all cherish... How frustrated many of us are that productivity is judged only in terms of output in the workplace and not by the millions of hours spent on nurturing the next generation or providing (laughs) dignified care at the other end of life. How offensive it is to be told that we need to honour the wealth creators and not frighten them off with punitive taxes as if wealth is not created by every worker who often contributes a greater proportion of their wages to taxes. Words, not deeds, was the suffragette's motto. If one-nation politics is not to vanish as suddenly as the British summer, or the big society, or the third way, remember them? Then by what deeds will we recognise the moral values, the moral values of one nation? It's, of course, easier to recognise what isn't a one-nation policy or state of affairs than what is. Tax loopholes that allow the household names that virtually define modern life, Google, Amazon, Starbucks, vodafones loopholes that allow them to avoid paying corporation tax on the basis that these companies owe no obligations to place and community at all. Well, that's not one-nation values, is it? A society where how long you live is determined by where you live or where Surrey contains almost as many successful Oxbridge applicants as Wales and the north-east of England combined. Well, that's not one-nation values, is it? A housing and social security policy that causes house prices in the south to bubble again and rents to rise, whilst driving whole families out of what they believed was their home to localities where they have no roots due to the bedroom tax and benefit cap combined that's definitely not one-nation values, is it? And I couldn't agree with you more, David, that I think it's just about the most pernicious policy in my lifetime.
1: That's what but, I said. Yeah, like <laughs> oh, Alan said. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I'm sure David <laughs> thought it so. <laughs> <laughs> you can go to the
4: any journalists in the audience. But what policies do adequately reflect the moral values of one nation? This is a much more difficult question, I think regional banks to address gross regional inequalities, a living wage to halt the slide in wages that the minimum wage has not protected. These feel like one-nation policies in that whatever the emphasis emphasis on community, one-nation surely has to imply reduced inequality as our lefty resident for the night, David Davis, has said. But, and this is a hard one... To what degree could a social security policy which reduces universality to increase the contributory principle, as Ed Miliband discussed last week, to what extent could that be described as one nation? Of course, the argument that the more you put in, the more you should get out, strikes a chord for us all. A contributory approach might seem fairer. It might even be more popular. But will it adequately protect people who are suddenly down on their luck? who do not contribute enough through paid work because they are engrossed with unpaid work, caring for others. Now, I understand important work is being done in the Labour Party to address some of these fairness issues about the contributory principle. But purely in value terms, is it right to encourage us to see the welfare state as nothing more than a giant state-run personal insurance policy, even if that was what Beveridge intended? rather than the mark of a civilized society, the ultimate mutual, through which we all pool our resources, not just to protect ourselves, but to care for others and who's, who hit hard times, as, for example, befell my grandfather a long time ago. In other words, does a something-for-something something blueprint really capture the spirit or moral values of one nation if it encourages self-interested citizenship rather than virtuous citizenship? which brings us back finally to Aristotle and the virtuous citizenship of our title. For Aristotle, moral virtue concerns what we do voluntarily and not what we do because we are forced to do it, and that makes sense to me. Perhaps I'm the only one on this platform to wonder about this, although I, though I somehow doubt I'm the only one in the room, but I'm occasionally concerned about one-nation politics morphing into a one-nation patriotism, which is not at all the same as telling the national story, a one-nation patriotism which involves not just telling us what we ought to do, but what we ought to think and even feel. I was reassured by what Jen- John said about this tonight, I think, <laughs> but I sometimes worry <laughs> that to be I'm a virtuous serious. citizen, it might not be enough to work, pay taxes, care for those we have responsibility for, and contribute to our local <clears throat> communities, regardless of where we or our families health on and how many multiple identities any of us may be comfortable with, are we being urged to avoid what my friend John Puddis has sometimes called remote cosmopolitanism, or what the author David Goodhart describes as universalists who feel no greater obligation to someone in Birmingham than in Burundi? Now, I don't know about any of you, but when the Secretary of State for Development, Justin Greening, told the directors of some of our major retail companies the other week that people... that that they owe moral obligations to the people of Bangladesh who manufacture our clothes, to me, that meant encouraging virtuous citizenship. I don't know about you, but when communities campaign to prevent deportations of school children to war-torn countries, that to me means virtuous citizenship. I don't know about you, but when we say that the UK is a nation that never condones torture, which includes not deporting people to other nations where we know they will be tortured, that to me means virtuous citizenship. To my mind, the moral values of one nation, driven by moral leadership, can offer new hope to a society crushed by commodification and gross inequality. But the greatest virtue of all is surely not to walk by on the other side, and that means also having a horizon beyond the confines of one nation.
0: Thank you. An amazing array of uh, comments and uh, stimulation, I think, for discussion. I'm supposed to have told you about Twitter and hashtag and stuff, and I haven't. So let me do that now. And those of you who are um, interested in uh, tweeting—I almost said Twitter—tweeting, <laughs> tweeting. please use the hashtag that's up here, which is hashtag LSE One Nation. Uh, if you haven't yet, please feel free to. Um, we have just over 20 minutes for discussion, and I'm going to take uh, questions, really brief questions, um, in groups of three. If I may have seen one hand up here, and I'd like to see women's hands up, too. I've seen yeah, Gana Cechsha and then Luki, and then I'd like to see a woman in this round, if possible. Hi.
1: Uh, thanks, thanks for the event. Uh, my name is Hussein Arslan. I'm Master of Science, Human Rights student um, at LSE. Uh, my question is for Mr. David Davies. Um, it's obvious that your conservative values are different, totally different than liberal values as conservative uh, nationalism uh, is totally different than liberal nationalism which is universal I'm just wondering whether you have any conflict of interest in parliament in making best law for this society I mean don't you have any conflict of interest in making, in passing the law uh, from the parliament for example one of the disagreements was, the, was to repeal the Human Rights Act 1998 um, can I get your comments on this, please? Thank you.
0: Thank you. Uh,
1: you were next. Uh, hello. My name is Luke. I work for Brighton North District Labour Party. My question is also for Mr Davis. Uh, given the divisive, divide more politics of this out-of-touch government, and, uh, you know, his heartless and cruel approach to the poor and vulnerable in this country, is it fair to come to the conclusion that this is certainly not a one-nation government and it's essential we put Ed Miliband in number 10 in 2015 <laughs> so we can lead a one-nation government that represents the many and not just the rich, you know, ex feud few that unfortunately lead this government?
0: I think we might guess the answer to that one. Um, okay, look, I'm going to take a third man and then I'd like three women in the next round. So. <laughs>
1: Thank you. Um, I think John's on to something when he talks about uh, unchecked um, elitism, and when David talks about um, one nation should be about uh, protecting the least well-off, I spend all of my days in clinical commissioning groups, health and well-being partnerships board, overview and scrutiny committees, and it goes on and on and on and on, who are completely dominated by elites. And yet they spend billions and billions of pounds of our money in terms of health services, housing, education, and so on and so forth. And unless we tackle the elitism there, we're not going to actually improve the lives of the many, many million people in this country. And I'd like some reflection on that in a real practical sense about what do we do.
0: All right, uh, David, you've got a couple
5: of questions
1: there. So
3: would you like to? Yeah. First? Um, anybody who thinks I'm against human rights has not been following my um, career, <laughs> um, at least of all my by-elections. Uh, so I'll I'll let that one pass. the The idea that the uh, coalition is cruel was it the, the word used? Cruel? What is it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, cruel. Uh, uh, it's interesting. I mean, there are many th- there are many criticisms I have of the of of uh, our government, my government, I suppose, um, but that's not one of them. Um, uh, inexperience, maybe they get things wrong from time to time, too frequently, uh, but not cruel. Uh, I wouldn't think that Nick Clegg or David Cameron have a cruel bone in either of their bodies. What they what they want to do, what is actually the outcome, isn't always the same thing, but not cruel. Uh, while we're on it, let me deal with the the, the the last one: this so-called unchecked elitism. The biggest single failure of modern politics. The si- the biggest single failure of modern politics and the entire political establishment, is the freezing of social mobility in Britain today. Um, we have got dreadfully poor social mobility. It was useful, wasn't it? Uh, dreadfully poor social mobility. Uh, I mentioned Diane Abbott's comments about the failure of the of the state education system, and it is the single most important thing to get right. Now, I'm, I'm in favour of selective education, because I think that's the fastest way to get working-class kids uh, out of their background and, uh, and onward and upward, as it were. Uh, but I'm in a minority in all parties in that respect. Uh, but it is the single biggest issue. And it's also particularly important now. All of the data shows that the returns to education, the benefit of education, both socially, nationally and individually, are going up, not down the only edge we have over the rest of the world. Uh, So that's probably, in my view, the most important thing that uh, we should be pursuing. I would say education, 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 but somebody said it before me. (laughs)
0: I'm going to let the two MPs go first. John, do you want to say
2: something? Uh, Well, I'll be brief. Just on the last point, actually. Here's here's a a good question for Labour. Just on the point of social mobility, actually, and anti-poverty. Labour government, empirically, I think this is verifiable, um, lifted a million kids out of poverty in its 13 years of government. Um, the latest estimates I saw is by 2020, a million kids were back in poverty. Now, I don't say that as a pejorative hit on the present government, Right. I actually think it shines a light on how resilient was our anti-poverty strategy, right? Was it based on a radical social mobility or was it based primarily around a series of fiscal transfers against the backdrop of growth, right, rather than much more transformative in what it could do, which gets you back to your point about the co-production of services actually with users and a much more radical devolution of services away from precisely those elites and actually Whitehall actually as well we doing this, um, and the question then is whether the the latest figures I saw were departmental expenditure cuts of non-ring fenced departments to still be about seven to ten percent per year post 2015. The debt doesn't start even to come down to 2018. So therefore, you can't salami slice these cuts. At some stage, there has to be a magic, massive reconfiguration of the state, the Whitehall relationship to the local government and the devolution of services and a much more strategic sense of what are your interventions around, I don't know, mental health or early years provision or recidivism or gang violence or whatever and reconfiguring the state around and staying with those interventions based around the evidence based about what we know the point is we haven't talked about that tonight but there is imminently, um, given the scale of the challenge that David mapped out in terms of the economic challenges, there's no growth engine coming back very quickly, it, it, it leads us to a, a much more radical conversation about the role of the state and re-democratising the state actually in this country. And that's where you get right back into the question of service delivery and can you uh, develop a real preventative strategy, which part of the last Labour government did with early years stuff with some of its multiple, you know, families with multiple needs, interventions, etc. But can you have a much more radical agenda around that whilst at the same time rebuilding uh, the pattern of services or reconfiguring them at the local level like your experience in London I guess yeah uh, I
0: don't Do you want
1: to come back? Yeah. Uh, just very quickly as I said my um, talk uh, I mean my feeling is that, I mean apart from the constitutional ones which I won't labour but the uh, social one uh, the, by far the one staying in the face in this country is the huge growth in inequality Uh, The figure I gave was the top 1%, Now take 15% of national income. Uh, That's going back to 1940. The last time that happened was in 1940, two years before the beverage report. Uh, And that share of national income by the super-rich, the 1%, is growing, growing all the time. Uh, Nothing's been done about it. The the last Labour governments did nothing about it. The Tory coalition governments are doing nothing about it. Uh, We're getting a lot of bleating-hearted comments about how sad it is uh, at a time when the Tory party has been run by a little coterie of old Etonians and uh, the Labour party seems to be run by people with PPI degrees from uh, Oxford, but never mind. Uh, I mean, one has few doubts about what that signifies. Would I really want people who've got third-class degrees from Nottingham Poly running the country? Well, no, perhaps not. Uh, but in any case, <laughs> but in any case uh, we still have to get down and tackle it. If, after another 20 years of uh, relative decline and 1% growth and more and more inequality and people being unable to live in London unless they've got an income of about 100,000 a year, uh, to have Labour and Tory politicians on the platform saying this is bad, but Aristotle said this. Uh, This may not. (laughs) This may not. And remember that before we start quoting Aristotle, Aristotle lived in a society where the good life depended on having millions of slaves and no one seems to mention the slaves. In any case, um, I don't think it's good enough. I think the Labour and Tory parties and Lib Dems, if we want to think to them, uh, these parties parties, uh, really have much more to do. It's nice to have... um, you know, could maverick politicians on the platform saying things that the governments and opposition, the uh, leaderships, wouldn't agree with. And it always makes us think that, you know, the party system might improve, but mm, I hear me doot as they have in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right. I'm just going to I think the people should All right. speak. Uh, any more hands? Lots of hands. Okay, we'll go to this end of the room, please. Um, If we could go to the gentleman there. We'll take three
2: again. Isn't the fundamental problem that for the past 30 years, really under both parties, we have had continuous neoliberal policies from both parties? I mean, the fact is that the period from, say, 45 to 79 was a period of um, compression of the difference between rich and poor in terms of incomes and wealth, whereas post 1979, the gap between rich and poor has widened generally
5: for 30 years. Isn't that the main problem?
0: Thank you. There's a woman uh, who's disappeared. Oh, it was you.
5: Yeah.
0: Hi, I just want to ask a question about social mobility, which uh, David Davis raised to all of the panel, really. Um, this whole obsession with we, us improving ourselves as a society as long as we make social mobility possible for a few members of the working class maybe who managed to escape their plight. Somehow this is a better and more acceptable society and this is something we should aim for. I wonder how that fits into the idea of one nation being there for all of us, all the working class, all the middle class or whatever class. Surely our aim should be to get rid of all classes for all of us rather than just a few members of parts of the working class who are allowed to escape and suddenly we've got a better society. So if all of you could comment, that'd be, that'd be great. Thanks. Thank you.
5: From the back. Yes. Um, I was really taken with what uh, Professor Clegg said about um, sort of uh, thinking of One Nation in terms of the community and um, kind of like the little person and what we see in our lives. And I, I think it, that sort of taps into like the sort of anti establishment politics that was what feels UKIP and whatever the next party that's created is. And I was just wondering, John, what was your reaction to that, and do you not think that's maybe a more substantive view of One Nation, something that's more electorally successful than maybe just talking about sort of Aristotle and things like that? <laughs> this, is
0: right? <laughs> <laughs> this is a university, right? This is a university, right? No, I mean, I don't, I don't <laughs> apologise. Um,
2: he
1: targets his audience.
2: you Francesca, do you want to? Yeah, I, I listened very carefully to what Francesca said. I have done on many occasions, and I think it's a very, very powerful message that she deploys around that question of economic and social solidarity, and how you <coughs> rewire communities and around connectedness. And, you know, um, I totally agree. Look, let me let me just put this quite bluntly. Um, after the last election, where we had arguably the last, the worst election defeat since I would say since 1918. The Labour Party, those MPs who are left, get together in a room called Committee Room 14 in the House of Commons for our weekly meeting. And the basic conversation, one after another, gets up, and it basically goes, well, it could have been worse. You know, I mean, it's, it was, we got, <laughs> could have been, because before we were on 22, 23% in the preceding year, and, and, and we came out from under it, we sort of counter organised in a few seats, and we got more MPs than actually we deserved. And there was assumption that this, this coalition would collapse within six months so the autumn there would be another election so if we just hardened up our language around immigration and welfare we could be game on to finish off what we left off, right? That was the basic tempo of the conversation. Now, I don't think that's necessarily good enough, right? So, the Labour Party has to embark on a journey of self-discovery. What is it for? It has to go back to fundamental propositions to re-establish the essential character of the political party. So therefore I do not apologise for going back to traditions of thought that might be exiled, bodies of ideas that we've sort of ignored for quite a long time to reconsider fundamentally who we are, right? So as out of that, deductively, you can pull together policies that tell that deeper story in terms of the identity and character of your political party, right? Now, we haven't done that, and so part of that is to be self-critical about what we became. It's quite easy for me because i spent a lot of time voting against the last government, you know? But it is (laughs) fundamental in terms of political redefinition. And, so that, and and also acknowledging and not disrespecting the electorate and acknowledging the scale of the crisis that we face. The Labour Party's had three great crises in its history, 1931, um, 1983 and now. And uh, we, we cannot be in denial about that. And in order to, do, to, to, to deal with the scale of the challenge, we have to confront what we became in order to redefine who we are. And we have to understand different traditions of thought bodies of ideas traditions so as to build policies on firm footings right and that's what we're doing right so some of this discussion about one nation its deemed as abstract as if there was this low hanging fruit of policy that meant we could hit the on off button and get back into power immediately right now that ain't going to happen because that is in denial about the scale of the problems we face so this whole notion of one nation labour is trying to create a template for which can we can acknowledge our record Good and bad, you know. I mean, to me, Tony Blair's a bit of a, you know, a Miles Davis figure. When he was on it, he was the best, you know. But when he wasn't, some of that later fusion stuff didn't really work for me, you know. And there was, there's there's sort of mixture, you know. There's a mixture, and so we have to be able to appropriate our own history by disentangling the good and the bad. And some of these discussions around one nation labour, some of these discussions around different traditions and philosophy, is precisely trying to do that, so as to rebuild a more enduring Labour government that has learnt and but also owns its own record. Now that's the task at hand. So jumping into, yeah, but where's your policy? Well, look, the world is a bit more, you know, the world is a (laughs) complex place, you know, and we've got to inhabit that complexity. I mean, and we've got to rebuild from the bottom up. We've got to go back to be an ordinary party, actually. Dylan Thomas once said that the, the Labour movement at its best is both magical and parochial. The magic lies in its ordinariness when it's on it, when it's anchored in the tempo of the country. That's what we've got to do. And I think that notion of community, as described by Francesca, is the perfect sort of pitch to that conversation.
1: This is it paving is. stone politics. Isn't it? Yeah, it, it is. is. No, it is. is. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's not, not, not about
2: there. just saying, you know, I'm going to have a new party this, tomorrow in the LSE. I'm going to invent another one, another one. Well, I don't like that one, I'll have this one. Let's try this one out, you know. I'm sorry, John, you're going to get expelled from his party. Hang, on, on. On. <laughs> hang on, hang on. <laughs> I, 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 the, uh, I asked really, Francesca to go. You, you know. really didn't
4: have the wrong idea about LSE, didn't you? About Aristotle, where all we do is found parties.
2: Here's one, here's one. Try this. Maybe I
4: should try and address the other two questions, you did so beautifully address your kind question. Um, So, neoliberalism, is it all the fault of neoliberalism? I I often think it's a bit unfair on liberalism, that term. I mean, what we really mean is it not, is it all the fault of let it rip free market capitalism? And certainly, that is what we've witnessed over the last 30-odd years, and yes, an awful lot can be laid at that door, and so that takes us to your question about social mobility. I agree with you, you know, as if there's an addressing let it rip free market capitalism through a game of snakes and ladders, who goes up, who goes down. I think people, as much as they're looking for a place of security to live in that they're not going to be thrown out of because they're, 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 they've got too many rooms um, as soon as their child hits nine, um, I think that in addition to that, in addition to a decent wage, in addition to a job, what people in this country <coughs> are crying out for, actually, is moral leadership. I think people are sick to death of their doing no ethics in politics you know of it being so discussed in such a goodness measured statistically etc and I think as you gathered that there is something in the Ed Miliband redefined one nation approach to politics but then it's not just a question of what are the policies but whether those policies measure up to the what you you know (coughs) the, the moral values that you're suggesting this is this, that is at the heart of One Nation, because you have to be really careful. Once you use the word moral, once you go there, you have to live up to it. I mean, those of us who can remember poor John Major, you know, do you remember when he talked about back to basics? And then, of course, before we knew it, um, Edwina Curry had let it all out and we knew what basics he went back to. I think I'm going to leave it here because I'm getting very unvirtuous. Yeah. Um,
1: I think. John's in for a surprise because I think the Labour Party is more fragile. Maybe I hope the Labour Party is more fragile uh, than he suggests because um, I I, I think the economic situation is going to get worse and get better (coughs) and I think that the the Labour Party will not really know how to respond. Uh, It will try and just say, well, me too, me too, I'll make some cuts and that's it, but it really will be left stranded. But then, you know, he says, no, Tony Blair is old hat, but no, with the European referendum coming up, and one will come up, uh, with that coming up, Tony Blair and Peter Mandelson are going to start crawling back towards the Labour Party, try to be part of the team for the Labour Party pro-Europe lot. I don't know what side you're going to end up on. I hear different reports. Uh, but in any case, the Labour Party is going to split. The people in the party won't like new Labour coming back in. You're, you're going to be a bit of a mess. Uh, well, that's all to the good. Anyway... Um, <coughs> I, I, I think in this situation the Tory party then uh, will find its uh, force with for the same economic and uh, foreign policy challenges it will be in a mess and moral leadership I don't think it's moral leadership that's going to be asked for I, I think it's going to be any kind of leadership and that's what worries me I think the, the vacuum at the top the power vacuum at the top in Britain is going to be agonising and um, that's why people like me are making preparations laughter <laughs> David. Yeah, let's, let's just do a little
3: fact check here, shall we? 30 years of neoliberalism. Uh, about a decade and a half ago, uh, the banks were taken out, were exempted from competition law. That's neoliberalism. Uh, in the last decade or so, we have seen international companies and other groups who are friends of the government <coughs> effectively exempted from tax law. That's, ne- that's not neoliberalism. That's crony capitalism. It's not the same thing, I'm afraid. Uh, and uh, so that isn't the reason for it. The the reason for it largely is that we have done two things at the same time. On the one hand, we've let our competitiveness sink, so we can't compete now with our major trading partners, and that's been covered up by a massive uh, borrowing splurge, primarily from China: consumer borrowing, government borrowing, corporate borrowing, and that's covered up all the errors and failures. Uh, of the last decade and a half, and that's why it's going to be difficult to dig out of it, and and John was honest enough to to say that earlier. In the midst of it all, in terms of the uh, inequalities, I think, that uh, Alan referred to, I mean, what we saw was a great deal of wealth extraction masquerading as wealth creation. I mean, that's the big issue in banking, if you really want to look at it. It's wealth extraction masquerading as wealth creation. All those bankers taking huge bonuses for uh, producing financial instruments, which are actually dangerous, not risk-free. So that's what, that's what happened, and I'm afraid too many uh, governments were asleep at the switch on that. Now, on social mobility, something to make me really cross here. I mean, it's very good for somebody sitting in this room, to say, oh, well, it's just a few working-class people denied their chance. I have to say to you, we've been talking about the measure of a virtuous society, virtuous citizens. The measure of a virtuous society is that everybody gets a chance. And if that's not the case, then you aren't living in a civilized society. And in this place of all places, you should recognize that. Fundamental protections uh, for people, uh, fair shares where you can, but a fair chance, most of all. And if you don't have that, your society will become unstable in a decade. Just look at most of the
1: Middle East.
4: I sometimes think men and women speak different languages, because if I can speak from off end over there, I don't think that's what you were saying, is it? No. It's what about
2: people who don't
4: move up? Yeah, I mean, that's if what you were saying.
3: it was about seven it was it was about seventy percent. And the great failure the great failure of the post-war e- um, educational settlement, all part of the, yeah. uh, 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 followed on from Beveridge, was that the educational establishment, I guess the government of the day, ignored the, the call for a technical school revolution at the same time as well. And so, what happened was that you had 20-30% who were, as it were, privileged um, because uh, they, they passed for 11-plus, and 70% who were largely forgotten. When what should have happened here is what did happen in Germany which is that they actually treated that group as having their own rights, their own skills, and they made the most of it, which is why Germany is the most powerful uh, country in Europe today, because they got both bits of it right, not just one bit.
0: We're just about out of time. I, don't, uh, I see one desperate hand waiting to go up. Um,
3: Oh, no, no. Oh, the Marxist over, over here. Geertie <laughs> wants to say something. <laughs> no,
0: he's got to wait for dinner.
3: <laughs>
0: I'm going so to. The, the yeah, yeah, I think you've been waiting for one, and then we'll make you the last question. I hope it's a fantastic question. <laughs> yeah,
4: no pressure, then. Yeah, I, don't
1: know. I, I don't know how unfashionable is the idea of of a rising tide lifting all ships, but I'm wondering if this debate is... is is to think that our society should now focus on itself um, and building a more virtuous citizenship and forgetting about economic growth in the rest of the world? Or as a third option, is it possible to both try and compete with rising economies in the rest of the world and build a more equitable society at the Mm. same time, which which would the panel prioritise? That's not
0: bad. We'll end on that question. (laughs) Um,
3: Shall I? Yes. Yeah, well, saying? actually, I think it's a terrific question, because uh, the simple truth is that in the run-up to all of these crashes, there was a rising, rising tide. It made society much easier uh, to manage. It meant everybody had a stake and everybody was doing better. And when that goes wrong, you see the problems. Uh, and I, I happen to think both are possible. I don't think it's necessary for us to live in a 1% world, uh, but we're going to have to do some difficult things. Uh, including cutting the cost of the state, including deregulating lots of business, very, very hard to do, uh, and at the same time being civilised about it. I mean, that's the, that's the trick, It's being civilised about it, making sure everybody has a chance and everybody's
1: protected. That's not easy. Hmm. Okay. Um, yes, I mean, I think if you want to take part in an international economy that's growing, you have to do various things at home, and you have to... Uh, improve exports and all sorts of things to interchange with that uh, international economy. At the same time, Uh, one has to structure the uh, fiscal system inside the country so that uh, if the tide is rising and greater wealth is being accumulated, then that wealth has to be shared and that wealth isn't extracted, as David said, by a small group at the top. Uh, Or all the wealth isn't just coming from banking or financial services or from services. It Mm -hmm. has to be based on a larger, uh, more varied kind of economy. Uh, Getting to the stage where you have a civilised society because the wealth is properly shared, I think means a lot more than just hoping it will trickle down. Uh, You do have to have a very um, aggressive uh, idea about how uh, you you, you shift the wealth around. And I I don't think either the Labour party or the Tory parties are uh, thinking about that sufficiently
2: Mm. Mm. I think again I think it's a great question I'll tell you where we sort of got to under new Labour or third way politics across Anglo-Saxon sort of third way politics was basically to assume that decline in wage rates across western market economies especially the US and UK and uh, the way we could reconcile that was through a system of negative income taxes or tax credits to prop up disposable incomes, given those competitive pressures across the globe. And uh, with having locked-in growth, and there was some empirical evidence to suggest growth was locked in for a, quite a while, 15 years, 60 quarters, you could mildly redistribute around the back by having some compact with finance capital. And that was the basic model that you could lift those million kids out of poverty. Um, but the trouble is, what happens when the music stops? You know, what, what, I mean, how does that model be... How do you rebuild that model for completely different... Political economy, and uh, you know, a uh, real time a dramatic retrenchment. So that's why we're having to go back to more fundamental questions of who we are, because we had a model that worked pretty well, locked in three big election victories for us. A fair bit of political empirical evidence to suggest it was pretty good. We bought that Greenspan model, um, we sort of adapted it slightly, um, but then it stopped. And what comes after? That is the big question that we have to follow. And it is, it's almost like in Crossland's revision, it was almost based on class reconciliation through economic growth as well. So what happens if there is no economic growth? Where does Labour fit? That's why we have to go through some more fundamental questions of what we're about and community and how you rewire communities, patterns of connectedness, when you can't just do it financially or transactionally. And that, that's, the, that's what this conversation is about, actually. And um, that's a big... Long road to be on. You know, don't it's, give it's up on
1: growth.
2: Though. Well, of course, you don't give up on growth. Well, you don't, but I mean, and it doesn't just drop out of the sky. You know, how do you reconfigure an economy? and How do you rewire it to sort of. Uh, that's why this conversation that we have in this very sexy word called pre distribution that we're playing around, which goes into more fundamental questions of architectural design rather than you know, that compact with the city, in effect. Last word,
4: Francesca. Yes, that's a great question because it's the stampede of elephants in the room which I try to slightly touch on at the end of what I said which is, you know, one nation, how insular is one nation. I'm not... These these two gentlemen are far more economically literate than me which wouldn't be difficult actually. Uh, So I'm not going to attempt to answer it economically but this was an event about morality and virtuousness. So I'm just going to finish by quoting um, the famous saying of Rabbi Hillel, who lived at the same time as Christ, which in his saying became the song of the partisans, the resistance in the Mm. Second World War. If we are not for ourselves, what are we? If we are only for ourselves, who are we? If not now, when?
1: (laughs)
0: What a great way to end. we have one more speaker who uh, I'm delighted to introduce, uh, Professor Craig Calhoun, the new director of... Well, not new anymore. Can we still say new? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <Yeah, sure. laughs> nearly Fairly. new. Nearly Fairly. new director. <laughs> Newer than new Labour. Yeah. He'll, he'll come up and join us and say a few words, please, uh, Craig. And can I just say, uh, as he does that, I should have introduced Professor Gonergirti, the director of the I- new director of the IPA, <laughs> which is uh, hosting this uh, series of events
5: Right. I would have rather had
2: more questions. I'm just going stand here, so
5: I won't say very many new words. Crucial first thing: I want to know if founding a new political party can count as a ref impact. <laughs>
1: well, I'd love to to be able to say yes, but um, well, the last one was 1993. It's in a previous era, but hmm, if it works, it works. Wow. Okay.
5: I want a lot of good research to go into it and get it right this time.
1: Well, uh...
5: <laughs> so. I, I, I to, uh, <laughs> no, wouldn't say anything. No. I want to take more time. I, this was a terrific uh, conversation. It's a conversation that needs to go on and I want to hear it more and all the parts of it and began to join some of the questions. I want to note there are a couple that didn't join. I wanted to hear and and, you know, Huge numbers that doesn't join. Connecting this conversation about who we are and what happens economically to those other questions like the environment questions that we face, climate change and so forth, seems crucial in all of this. And I want to ask, or not ask for the panel to answer, but to say the questions are about connecting these things up. We have a series of of basic comments here about solidarity and cohesion and community. Is it one nation? Is it one world? You know, what is the we here? We have a series of questions that are essentially about morality in politics and, and ultimately commitment. What is, what is the connection of virtue, the morality, the politics that holds us together and pulls us? And we hear it from various different people. We have a set of questions about what is there beyond growth statistics and economic material Um, achievement and how does that matter? We have a a question not fully surfaced about the recent period of of growth but a growth that was overwhelmingly finance led and the question of what this means in relation to some kind of sustainable growth which then brings back those environmental questions but also the questions about the nature of of our lives together. And we have a question that is um, ultimately about the uh, way in which the values that we are going to buy into, which are in tension with each other, get resolved. And I want to end up with that. Because I I thought the key here was not that there are some different values. So I get it. There's a value on growth. There's a value on equity. There's a value on social mobility. There's a value on transforming society. There's a value um, that is about the individual voluntary side and there's a value about community but what I liked about the panel wasn't a solution to that, it was the tone of thinking that the solution had to come between admi- around admitting there were some clashes working with civility as suggested to address those and um, putting them squarely on the agenda because in my year in Britain but unfortunately in my all of my 60 years the missing thing has been ability to get these things honestly surfaced on the agenda. Um, from I left Britain in the, the 1970s in the midst of a previous recession not quite as massive, a previous political crisis and transition not quite as massive, with a fundamentally failed political set of solutions on offer by all major political parties at the time. I returned to something too close to that, Right, And in between, there was a giant bubble in which with different groups, it looked like there was a massive expansion of the economy, but it could be deflated so easily. Mm. It was financial. It looked like there was building something new, but it could be pulled back. The poverty statistics or other things could be available. The thing that was missing, I realize, among other things, basic policy, fundamental social transformation, change, things the LLC ought to stand for, but also... Relatively high quality argument based on honestly putting trade offs and challenges forward. And I hope the LLC stands for that too. And I thank you for coming and joining in it.
0: That just leaves me then to thank our amazing panel of speakers, Francesca Club, John Croddis. Alan Skid and David Davis, who have been absolutely fantastic, I think, tonight. Remember, you've witnessed the birth of a new political party.
1: Possibly. Is Possibly. The birth? Are you starting I hope. Tonight? Well, I'm encouraging others. Okay. Dem- <laughs> Democrat, Democratic self-government at gmail.com, don't <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and, welcome and, aboard. <laughs> and
0: Tony Blair as Miles Davis is another thing to take away from tonight. But thank you all for coming. Please stay in this conversation. Keep in touch with the LSE IPNers. Craig said, this, isn't, this is just the opening uh, of a conversation that we hope to go on for some time yet. Thank you all for coming.
4: Thank you, Chair.